As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark 1, 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way we live our lives? How many of us can say we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestled alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what did these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our lives, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So, we're continuing our journey through the Acts of the Apostles, and as we talked about last week, St. Paul has now set his eyes towards Jerusalem, so that way he can be there for the Pentecost. And as we spoke about prior, Pentecost for the early church is not just the celebration of the giving of the law as it was for the Jews, but rather we see it's also a celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which has happened within the Zach's narrative. So the desire of St. Paul that we see is to be with the church in Jerusalem, not only for the celebration of the Jewish Pentecost, that's the handing of the law, but for the Feast of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that we Christians celebrate today. So as we will recall, last week we saw St. Paul gave this farewell discourse to the Ephesian bishops. And when he was giving this farewell discourse, he charged them to care for the flock entrusted to them by God as he cared for them. And we're going to see this motif continue now as we begin chapter 21, because the love and the care that St. Paul shows all of those entrusted to him as a pastor will continue to emanate through him as he makes this journey to Jerusalem. And again, we need to remember St. Paul is under a bit of a time crunch now. He's trying to get to Jerusalem for the Pentecost, and yet he's still going to be seen stopping from place to place for a time, so that way he can strengthen and foster the brethren there. So we need to keep that motif in the back of our minds as we begin to dive into this chapter, because I think, especially in this travel account that we're going to read as he's journeying to Jerusalem, we see highlighted the love and the extreme humility that St. Paul has is that love is constantly being shared with those who have been entrusted to his care, but he's ultimately leading them all to the true source of love, that is Christ, through the manifestation of his will and the guidance that St. Paul is receiving through the Holy Spirit and the humility that he has taken on to align his will with the will of God for his life. So, there's my three-minute ramble for this week, and now we're going to dive into chapter 21 of the Acts of the Apostles. 
And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petra, and having found a ship, crossed to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Through the Holy Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, brought us on our way till we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and bade one another farewell. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Potomolis, and we greeted the brethren and stayed with them for one day. On the morrow we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this girdle and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, The will of the Lord be done. After these days, we made ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we shall lodge. So, within this rather lengthy travel narrative that we just read, what do we see? Well, we see that St. Paul and his company continue to make their journey towards Jerusalem. And it's also of note here that we're in another we section. That is, St. Luke is referring to himself as traveling with St. Paul as they're on their way to Jerusalem. And so they go to Kos, and then they go to Rhodes, and from there, Petra. And when they find the ship, they cross, and they set sail for Cyprus. And as they leave Cyprus on their left, they finally sail to Syria and landed at Tyre, where we see the ship unloads its cargo. So in this time, while the ship is unloading its cargo, well, the company, along with St. Paul, they have some time on their hands. So what do we see them do? Well, even though, again, we need to remember there's this time constraint because St. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem for the Pentecost, they sought out the disciples. 
That is, they sought out the church entire. And we're told here that they stayed with them for seven days. Now, this number seven is going to come up multiple times within the section. And we need to remember what the number seven signifies within the scriptures. Because the number seven signifies completion. It signifies fulfillment. And ultimately, like everything within our tradition, it signifies the completion and the fulfillment of the promises of God. So when God created the world within seven days, we see that the whole act of creation is fulfilled with his rest on the seventh. And so with this identification of seven days passing, well, what do we see? But we see there's a motif of fulfillment that is taking place. This church entire is one of the churches entrusted to St. Paul as well as the other apostles. And yet St. Paul is ending this part of his missionary journey. His third mission that he's been on is coming to an end. And there might be some uncertainty for him as to the fate of the churches that he's helped to found. And yet, what do we see here? Well, we see that after they stayed for seven days, St. Paul's faith is confirmed. And we hear that after these days ended, they departed and went on their journey. Yet, we also hear before this, towards the end of verse 4, that through the Spirit, those Christians entire received word of what was to happen to St. Paul. And so they tried to hinder him from his journey to go to Jerusalem. And it's here that we see a motif that's going to continue to come up because as the Spirit reveals to those around St. Paul what his fate is going to be, they become sorrowful. They desire not to see St. Paul go to his imprisonment. And we need to remember St. Paul doesn't fully know what's coming his way. As St. Paul referred to within the last chapter during his farewell discourse, he doesn't know for sure what's going to assail him when he comes to Jerusalem, but he knows that afflictions, hardships, and imprisonment have continued to combat his life throughout his ministry. So if that's the case, the assumption is, okay, maybe these things are going to come to pass again. And yet we see here that the Spirit explicitly tells the Christians here that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem because there's something horrible that's going to happen to him. And yet we see in verse 5, he's not hindered from his journey. Because after these seven days were ended, we hear we, that's the whole company along with St. Paul, St. Luke included, went on our journey. And yet, we don't see the brethren entire sitting there despondent and upset because St. Paul is now leaving them and he's going to go off and eventually suffer. Because we actually hear that as they're departing, they all come out, that is the wives and the children along with the men. And they bring St. Paul along with his company out until they're outside the city. And then there's another action that we see here that highlights the faith of the Christians, because even though they're sorrowful, even though they don't want to see St. Paul leave them, and especially since they don't want to see him die, 
they still have this profound faith in the Lord. And so we see that kneeling down on the beach, they prayed and bade one another farewell. So they didn't just say goodbye, Paul, and they didn't just hide from St. Paul as he was leaving. Even though they had this great sorrow in their hearts, rather, they followed St. Paul out. And they prayed for St. Paul, commending him into the hands of God and allowing for him to carry out the will of the Lord and all that he's doing. And in the identification of the wives and the children coming out, we see that the church consists of all of humanity. It consists of the whole family. So these entire families are coming out to wish their brother in the Lord farewell, even though there's this sadness associated. And then we hear that when they went back on board the ship, they returned home. And when they finished the voyage from Tyre, they arrived and they greeted the brethren and stayed with them for one day. So again, we see another period of time is elapsing. They're taking some time to minister to the brethren. And in this, we also see St. Paul witnessing the seeds of faith which have been planted. Because we hear on the next day, when they depart and they came to Caesarea, they entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So this is the reintroduction of a very familiar figure from the Acts narrative, because it's the same Philip who was one of the seven deacons. It's the same Philip who baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. So we see that St. Philip has continued to have this very fruitful ministry to the point where St. Luke uses a very strange word for the New Testament, a word that doesn't occur very often, that is evangelist in association with Philip, which means that St. Philip is known for bringing the evangelical message of the gospel and presenting the message of the gospel to all those around him. So here we see that Philip is identified as truly being a preacher and servant of the gospel, as we saw the deacons functioning, practically speaking, within the narrative in which they were introduced. And we hear that the faith of Philip doesn't only extend to him, but it extends to his family as well, because there is an identification here of him having four unmarried daughters. And these four virgin daughters are said to have prophesied. So the evangelical gift that's within Philip doesn't only end with him. Rather, we see this gift extends through his entire family. And in the hospitality he's showing the St. Paul and his companions, we see this full presentation of the love of God that's shown through Philip's actions. And then we hear that when they were staying with them for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now again, we see another familiar character from the Acts narrative, because it's the same prophet, Agabus, who came down to Antioch and prophesied of the famine that was going to come. And now he comes again down from Judea. And when he comes in the contact with Paul, he takes his girdle or belt 
and he wraps it around his hands and his feet. And he prophesies in the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this girdle and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So what we see here is the first explicit reference to what St. Paul is going to have to suffer when he goes to Jerusalem. We may recall that he's been intuiting what is about to come his way, and yet he doesn't fully know what will transpire. And yet, in this very blunt proclamation of Agabus, what do we see? Well, we see that's revealed to St. Paul exactly what is about to befall him. And when his company hears this, so it's not only the Christians around him, but it's even the people who have been traveling with him and evangelizing with him, we hear, when we heard this, we and the people there begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So again, we see this motif continuing of the brethren fearing for St. Paul because now they know he's going to be in prison. Now they know he's going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And yet, how does St. Paul answer? Well, St. Paul answers this cry from the brethren with the most compassionate words we can think of. Because he speaks to how their sorrow is affecting his heart. He says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So see what St. Paul first does here. He identifies the mourning and the sorrow experienced by the brethren. He looks at the pain that they're feeling. And he acknowledges the pain that he's feeling as well when he sees their sorrow and their grief and their mourning. And yet, St. Paul still has a mission. St. Paul is still called to do something more than just appease the brethren, even though their desire for him to live is good. Rather, as pastor, what do we see St. Paul do? Well, he reminds them of his mission, and he says that he's ready not only to be in prison, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. St. Paul's number one goal and number one mission is not to appease the emotions of those entrusted to him. Rather, his mission is to preach the gospel and glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is also the call of all Christians. So in showing the brethren here in Caesarea that this is what he will be doing and what he is setting out to do, he comforts them because he reminds them of what they as well are called to do. This is their call to align their will with the will of God, even though at times it may be difficult to do so. And we will find sometimes in our life when God is revealing his will to us and we're very stuck in our own ways, we're also going to mourn and we're also going to struggle. Because regardless of how good our intentions might be in living for whatever it is we are willing, oftentimes we'll find when we look in our heart of hearts that's in conflict with the will of God. And yet, when this occurs, what is it that we're called to do? 
But we're not called to become despondent. We're not called to become stuck in sorrow. Rather, we're called to see the light as St. Paul reveals to the brethren here. Because when he reorients them towards glorifying the name of the Lord Jesus, he reminds them of why it is that they are living the life they are living. And then we hear in verse 14, when St. Paul would not be persuaded, they ceased. So they ceased trying to beg him not to go. And instead, they proclaim as one, the will of the Lord be done. So we see that St. Paul has realigned the brethren. And then we hear after three days, they made ready and went for Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with them. So not only do they now affirm that St. Paul must go with the will of the Lord, but we see that some of the brethren from Caesarea also go with St. Paul, even though they know that he's soon going to be bound in a prison. And so what we can really take away from this entire section is how St. Paul as a pastor shows his love for the brethren. As St. Paul is going from place to place, we see that he's continuing to minister to the churches that he founded. And yet, even though he may have thoughts of fear as to the future of these churches, since he has some inkling that he's no longer going to see them, he's strengthened time and time again by God, because God continues to show him the fruits of his labor through those who are now picking up the cross of ministry to the faithful there. Whether it be Philip and his virgin daughters, or it be the Christians entire, we see that the church is bound together as one, and those who are called towards the ministry of serving the Lord are living up to this call. And so this is a great comfort to St. Paul. St. Paul knows that those who he loves and those who he's ministered to will not be left abandoned. And this is what gives him the strength to be able to tell them that he's ready not only to be in prison, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Because he truly knows through the fulfillment of what he has seen and what he has experienced and what he has lived, that Christ is constantly there caring for his people. So this belief is what gives St. Paul the strength to face all of the hardship that's about to assail him because he truly believes that Christ has risen. So St. Paul isn't depicted here as being ready to stupidly offer up his life. Rather, he's being depicted as following in the footsteps of Christ. Is in the same way that Christ suffered, we know that he continues to co-suffer with us, strengthening us and giving us what we need to carry out his will. And so this is the belief of St. Paul. He has this profound experience of Christ as he's on the road to Damascus, a profound experience that continues to emanate throughout the whole of his life. And now that we see St. Paul on the road to his own persecution in Jerusalem, as he walks in the footsteps of Christ, where Christ, too, was persecuted, tried, and put to death, 
he's fully of the understanding that Christ is at work in him because he's had this very profound experience of him throughout his ministry, not only in these visions that he's had and these interpersonal react interactions he's had with Christ, but also through seeing Christ at work within the brethren and within the church, the flock that has been entrusted to St. Paul's care. So when we look at the example of St. Paul, the major takeaway that we need to see is the self-sacrificial love that he shows towards the brethren. But this love ultimately isn't rooted in Paul. And that's why when Christ shows him that his will is calling him towards Jerusalem, Paul doesn't abandon the brethren. Rather, he reorients their perspective because in his self-sacrificial love that he shows to the brethren, he's also showing the brethren that that love is ultimately rooted in and needs to be directed towards Christ because this is the same love that Christ is continually showing to each and every one of us. So moving on to the next section. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what you tell what we tell you. <clears throat> we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in the observance of the law. But as from the Gentiles, who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from unchastity. When Paul took the men the next day, he purified himself with them and went into the temple to give notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering present for every one of them. So as St. Paul comes to Jerusalem, we see that he and his company first go to the brethren and they receive them gladly. And then in verse 18, we're told that on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. So this James that we see is James, St. James, that is the brother of the Lord and first bishop in Jerusalem. And we saw the same St. James during the council in Jerusalem. So remember, as the presiding hierarch in Jerusalem, 
he was the one who made the final statement of the council, symbolically representing the statement made of all of the elders. And yet we see here that this conciliary manner of speaking is still at play even within this section, because even though James is mentioned explicitly, we hear that all of the elders were present. And so we hear in verse 19, after greeting them, as after Paul and his company greet them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So St. Paul comes to the local bishops within Jerusalem, and he gives them the account of all that God has done through their ministry. And I think it's important to look at the order of events here, is when St. Paul comes to Jerusalem, immediately he goes to the brethren. So he joins the church as he's been continually shown to do in lands where there already have been churches founded. Because again, St. Paul has been shown as going to the synagogue when he goes to a new land. However, when he's been shown going to a land he's already been in, he goes immediately to the brethren. So we see the same motif at play here. And yet, this charismatic figure of St. Paul doesn't go around preaching to people without permission. Rather, he goes to the local leaders of the church immediately on the following day, and he goes to James, the presiding hierarch, for it first. So we see here that there's order at play in the actions of St. Paul. St. Paul isn't going around Jerusalem as this charismatic leader. Rather, he's going into Jerusalem where there are bishops present who have been entrusted by the Spirit with the care of this flock. And so St. Paul, in humility, lowers himself and offers this account of all that he has done through God in his ministry. And so we hear that after they hear this report of all of the Gentiles receiving glory of God, they glorify him themselves. So there's a great joy associated with the report that St. Paul gives. And after St. Paul gives his report, we hear that the elders, that is the bishops, respond. And they say to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So here we see that they highlight the fact that look at how many Jews have also believed in the Lord here in Jerusalem. So we see these two reports, basically, of these two separate missions coming together to show how the church has continued to grow. And yet, not all is well within the Jerusalem church. And it's here where we see why it was so important that St. Paul would go to the leaders of this church, because these leaders, these bishops, know their flock because they're actively involved in the lives of their church community. And so they know problems that St. Paul as an outsider would not be aware of. And in highlighting these problems, we hear that they, that is a lot of these Jews who have believed, are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. So there's some confusion happening within the local Jewish community and probably within the local Christian community as well, because there are some believers being identified here. 
And the confusion is that there are people saying that St. Paul is telling those who live among the Gentiles, that is, Jews within the diaspora, none of the law matters anymore. Reject Moses, reject circumcision. You don't need to do any of this. So what we see here is a distortion of the words of the council, and this distortion is being highlighted by the bishops, because what we see here is that St. Paul is depicted as telling people, reject the law, send it away. And yet, when have we ever seen this? Even after St. Paul received the charge of the council that will be reaffirmed here at the end of the section, he went very shortly after, and circumcised Timothy. And yet, why did he do that? Well, he didn't do that because he wanted Timothy to be circumcised under the law because he was in contradiction of the decree of the council. Rather, as a pastor, he saw the potential within Timothy to be able to go and preach with him within the synagogue. And since so many people knew that Timothy's father was a Gentile, They would have turned around and said, well, we know that this child's father was a Gentile. We know that he himself was not circumcised. And so here's St. Paul doing what is unlawful within the eyes of the Lord. So St. Paul, as pastor, continually works within the confines of the law, yet he's not beholden to the law itself. Rather, he's beholden to the law within Christ, and the way that Christ has filled it to its brim. So when we hear that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets, we need to again remember what does that word mean? It means to fill to overflowing. It doesn't mean a rejection. It doesn't mean a casting off. Rather, it means that the full manifestation of what the law given to us by God, was intended to be, is now made manifest through the person of Jesus Christ, the person whose image Paul is trying to emulate and whose likeness he's continuing to walk in. And so we hear the bishop say, what then is to be done? Because they know that there's this issue coming down the pipeline. There are these people slandering St. Paul, saying that he's throwing the law out the window. So what's going to happen? We have this conflict that is soon to ensue. And so they say that those certainly hear that Paul had come. Because again, we see this highlighted. We see this reality that, okay, conflict is in the air in a sense. And so in verse 23, we hear that the bishops charge St. Paul And they tell him, we have four men who are under a vow. So what we want you to do is take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them so that way they can take this vow between them and God with the shaving of their head. So the vow that is being identified here is what's known as the Nazarite vow which is kind of a proto-understanding of the monastic vows that we know of today. So during this Nazarite vow, which you can find the full details of in the book of Numbers chapter 6, we see that there is a, for a period of time, covenant made between God and his people. So it's a promise made between an individual and God. And what 
this promise is marked by is, first of all, these ritual sacrifices, these sacrifices which St. Paul is being asked to pay for, for these four men. And it's also marked, more significantly, by the shaving of one's beard and hair. And so for the time allotted to this vow, what the individual would do is grow their beard out and grow their hair out. And this is how they would be marked, in a sense, as taking on this Nazarite vow between them and God. And during this time, they would participate in intense fasting and this was their way of totally devoting themselves to the Lord. So in the bishops telling St. Paul that they want him to go ritually wash himself in the temple as well and allow for these four men to participate in this Nazarite vow, what they believe is that this will quell all of the suspicions that some of the Jews have of St. Paul. And yet, as we're going to see in the next section, this is to no avail because there's something motivating the actions of those who are trying to persecute St. Paul, something that's much darker than mere confusion. Rather, it's the same spirit that we've seen chasing Paul from place to place, animating the people who resent him. It's the spirit of resentment. It's, his it's the spirit of hatred, the same spirit that continued to harden the hearts of the Jewish leaders, leading them to blind themselves to who Christ was to the point where the mob grew and ended up trying him. And so we hear that St. Paul takes these men the next day and he purifies himself along with them. And they go to the temple to give notice of the days of purification would be fulfilled and they make the offerings, and this closes the section. So what do we see St. Paul doing? Well, we see St. Paul ultimately doing what is called of him through the law. Because again, we need to remember within the context of St. Paul, St. Paul was a chief Jew. He was very well informed. In fact, as the chief persecutor of the church, he even knows all of the best arguments against the Christians. And yet the zeal that St. Paul continued to show in what he refers to as his prior life is the same zeal that now he orients towards Christ. And so in carrying out these actions and in being obedient to the bishops who are asking him to do this, we see the humility of St. Paul. But we also see the understanding that St. Paul has of the whole context of the situation. Because again, we need to remember, St. Paul has now explicitly had articulated to him that he's going to be in prison. He's going to be bound and handed over to the Romans. Yet, in faith and obedience to the local hierarchs in Jerusalem, he doesn't tell them, okay, none of this is going to matter because I'm going to be imprisoned. Rather, he goes and carries out the law freely and of his own accord, in love, not only for those who he's paying for, but for the whole church in Jerusalem. So we need to really pay attention to the humility that St. Paul shows within the obedience he's participating in, because I think oftentimes obedience is misconstrued within our context. We think that obedience is something 
where we blindly follow somebody because they're an authority figure. And yet, obedience within our tradition is not rooted in blindly following. Obedience is rooted in well, a self-sacrificial, other-oriented relationship. When we're obedient to our hierarchs, the understanding that we have is that our hierarchs know their flock, know their community better than anyone else. So again, when we see St. Paul being obedient to the hierarchs in Jerusalem, well, why is he doing so? Well, first of all, he has a relationship with them. Remember, he's met them before. But second of all, he doesn't know the context of the church in Jerusalem because he's an outsider coming in. So when he is obedient to the bishops, what is he doing? He's saying, I don't know everything. He's saying, I'm willing to see where I'm supposed to be going. And so when they tell him of this conflict that's arising, what does he do? Well, he freely follows their decree because he has the faith and understanding that they probably know the situation better than he does. Even though we know, objectively speaking, St. Paul has had it explicitly prophesied to him that he will be bound and imprisoned. He still, in humility, obeys what he's being told. So when we think about obedience, when we think about listening to that which our spiritual fathers tell us, we need to remember that obedience is always in relation. So even if we think a bishop is quote-unquote bad and we make that judgment in our own pride, well, we don't know the whole context. We don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole experience that that bishop, who is a human being, is going through. Because when we take a peek behind the curtain, chances are we find out that there are a lot more variables at play that they are tracking, which we were unaware of. And so, in a sense, when we turn around and we try to say that we're right and clergy are wrong, and we're right and our hierarchy is wrong, well, in a sense, we're kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. Because, yeah, we can see in hindsight the mistakes that people make. However, in the moment... There may be many numerous variables that we're not tracking because we're not aware of them, because we're not in the position to be. And yet, we shouldn't even desire to have these variables to track because all of these realities that our hierarchs and our clergy have to deal with, they're a great weight on them. They're called to be servants first, as we see St. Paul, as we've seen time and time again with all of those who are following Christ as his pastors, as the ministers to his sheep. And in their ministry, they have a very high bar to live up to because they're supposed to be first and foremost servants. And yet, with that high bar comes a great weight, a great responsibility. So rather than looking at our clergy and our hierarchy and having our own personal judgments that we're projecting on them, well, maybe we should try our best to support them in faith that they are doing what it is that God is calling them to do. And even if objectively speaking, we say, okay, you're missing the mark, you're messing up on humility, what are we called to do? 
Well, instead of focusing on how we think someone else is messing up and how someone else is missing the mark, we need to look inwardly and ask ourselves, how are we missing the mark? Not only in that thought and in that action, but in all aspects of our life. So moving on to the final section of this week's chapter with verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia who had seen him in the temple stirred up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has also brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had perceived that Trephimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was roused, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying, Away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up the revolt and led the four thousand men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city. I beg you, let me speak to the people. And when he had given him leave, Paul standing, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, saying, So that brings the chapter to an end, where St. Paul is beginning to give his defense that we will talk about next week. But what we see here in the beginning of this section is that when seven days were almost completed, that is the fulfillment of the vow that Paul has allowed to transpire with those who have been entrusted to him, we hear that Jews from Asia who had seen him in the temple stirred up all the crowd and laid hands on him. So in a sense, we see that those who had been following St. Paul from his prior mission, those who had been trying to do away with St. Paul back then, now come in search of him. And when they see him in the temple, they laid hands on him after stirring up the crowd. So again, we need to remember what is happening here, because when we hear the Jews of Asia being highlighted, 
This isn't speaking about an ethnic group. Rather, this is speaking about a group of individuals who have given themselves over to a negative mentality. That is the mob mentality. So when we see individuals identified as groups within the scriptures, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us in the sense they're this conglomeration. They've melded together and they're no longer being identified as their individual persons. So when you hear this language about the Jews in particular being highlighted within the scriptures, it's not a negative condemnation of an entire ethnic group. Rather, it's a way of summarizing the spirit that is at play within this time and place within the narrative. Because as this group of Jews from Asia comes together, well, what do we see? We see that immediately they stir up the crowd and laid hands on St. Paul. So there's a desire to do away with St. Paul. And in this desire, we hear them cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching men everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. So in the first section of their cry, we see that they're feeding this false narrative of who St. Paul is, that he's telling people to reject the law. And yet, what did we just see St. Paul do? Well, we saw St. Paul commanded and entrusted by the bishops participate in the law. We saw him do what was proper and right within the confines of the law. And yet even here, we see that they accuse him of telling them to reject the law of the prophets. And they make matters worse because they say he's brought Greeks into the temple. So again, Gentiles were not allowed within the temple proper. Rather, they were outside in the outer courts. And yet this accusation is saying, well, St. Paul has defiled the law by bringing Gentiles with him. And yet... We hear in verse 39 that they previously saw him with this Ephesian in the city. And so what they do? Well, they jumped to the conclusion. They made this presupposition that St. Paul must have brought this Gentile in with him when he went into the temple. So we see that what undergirds all of their accusations are lies. But they're lies that they have convinced themselves to believe at this point because they see themselves as justified. So much so to the point where they rouse up the whole city and then the people run together and seize Paul and drag him out of the temple. So the people now come together in this mob. They're maddened. They feel that St. Paul has been forsaking the law and the prophets. And so they grab him and they drag him out of the temple. And then we're given this last clause, and at once the gates were shut. And here we see the gates being shut, not only to St. Paul for the end of his missionary work within the temple, but to the Christians widely. Because we hear a lot of commentators within Patristic writers comment on the fact that in the shutting of these gates, we see that the Christians are permanently barred from the temple. And yet, even though this might not be historically accurate, because for a time we still saw the Christians celebrating, that is, the daily prayer services within the temple, 
symbolically what we see at play here is what happens when we harden our hearts and when we close ourselves off to the message of the gospel. Because when we close ourselves off to the truth that God is trying to reveal to us as to how we are called to live our life, what are we doing? We're closing the gate of ourself. We're shutting out the possibility of God being received into us. And if we're going to take this another step further, well, what does that look like in terms of our salvation? Well, it looks like the unprepared virgins who, when their oil ran out in their lamps and they had to go get more, came back and the gates towards the bridal feast were shut to them. And the reason for that was because they, in their unpreparedness, had closed themselves off from being able to enter this wedding feast. And we see the symbolism of gates being shut time and time again within the scriptures, because it tells us not only what will happen to us if we close ourselves off from God, but shows us how that fate is made manifest. Now, this isn't an expression of something that's permanent that's happening, to say if we were to jump to the conclusion, well, this is when the Jews ultimately reject Christ and Christianity, so they can't be saved. Because again, from our theology, we believe that as long as we have breath in us, repentance is a possibility. Who's to say that those within this mob or those within the mob that persecuted Christ did not repent? If St. Paul, who was the chief persecutor of the Christians, turned around and reoriented his life towards Christ when he has this road to Damascus moment, well then, who's to say that anyone is out there who does not have a chance towards repentance? Because St. Paul is this great sinner as he lives his prior life as Saul. And yet now, fast forward towards the end of his mission, what do we see? But we see now Paul is being treated just as Christ was. He's being tried as a criminal. He's being beaten now, as we hear, as he's dragged out of the temple. And as they're trying to kill him, word comes to the local tribune. And he hears that all of Jerusalem is in confusion. And at once, this Roman takes centurions and runs down to them. And when they see them, what happens? Well, the mob stops beating Paul. So we see that the mob intends to take actions into their own hands. So they seize Paul, they drag him out of the temple, they shut the gates to him so he can no longer return, and then they attempt to beat him to death. And yet, what do we see happen? Once again, salvation comes to St. Paul from God through the most unlikely source. Because the moment here where his life is spared, because again, we need to remember where is St. Paul aiming towards? Where is St. Paul's mission ultimately supposed to go? Well, it's supposed to go to Rome. And so even though he is in this dire situation, even though this mob has formed around him and is beating him to death, what happens? Well, we see these soldiers unknowingly become co-workers with the will of the Lord and end up being the vindication of St. Paul, liberating him from this moment of death. We also know that's going to be the Romans who ultimately behead St. Paul. And yet, 
we see that transpires when his mission is fulfilled, when he finally does everything that God has been calling him to do. So here we see salvation comes. And again, this is a reminder that God is continually sending intercessors for us in our life, even from unlikely sources. And so after they stopped beating Paul, the tribe came and arrests him and orders him to be bound with two chains. And as St. Paul is so heavily bound, the tribune inquires as to who he was and what he'd done. And we see the madness of the mob continue to present itself here because the crowd shouts one thing and some in the crowd shout another thing. So there's no agreement as to why they were beating this man to death. Rather, they've given themselves over to this mob mentality and have continued to do so. And we hear when the tribune could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he orders Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps of these barracks, what happens? Well, we hear that the soldiers actually had to carry St. Paul up the stairs. And the reason they had to carry him was because of the violence of the crowd. So the crowd is truly maddened. The spirit of resentment is truly at work in them and motivating them and enslaving them to act as wild beasts, gnashing their teeth at St. Paul and desiring to do this violence towards him in the same way that the mob was motivated by the same animating spirits to persecute Christ and come together and cry, crucify him. So as we hear the mob follow, crying away with him, we see a very reminiscent cry that we heard when they cried, crucify him, Christ. Thus, Paul is shown here truly walking in the footsteps of, of Christ. In the same way, we are called to walk in the footsteps of St. Paul. Because remember the faith that St. Paul is showing. St. Paul is doing this not because he thinks God has abandoned him, not because he has some concept that this is what Jesus wants me to do, but because he has this personal relationship with Christ and he knows that Christ offers the same self-sacrificial love to him. And Paul is called to reciprocate that love and show it towards Christ and the whole of his creation. And so as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he says to the tribune, may I say something to you? And it's here that we see what the tribune thought his identity was, because immediately he turns around and he says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then? The recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. So what this local tribune is highlighting here when he's shocked because he thinks that Paul is this Egyptian, was a local attempt at a revolt. And during the attempt of this revolt, the Romans came in, they stomped out the revolt, and yet the leader of this revolt was freed. And so in all of the confusion as to who it was that stirred up this mob here, this guy assumes, oh, this is probably the guy from Egypt who fled, who we still haven't captured. He's probably now in Jerusalem. And so that's why he's so shocked when he hears St. Paul reply to him in Greek. And 
Then we hear St. Paul further reply, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city. I beg you, let me speak to the people. So Paul identifies himself as being a Jew, which would allow for him to make his defense to the Jewish people. But then he also identifies himself as being of Tarsus in Sicilia. So he's also here highlighting his Roman citizenship from the region he is from. And so when he begs this tribune to let him speak to the people, Paul is doing so from the perspective of not only a peer of them, but a peer of the Romans. Because through his citizenship, he has this dual status. He is entrusted and responsible for a trial as a Roman citizen, but he's also respected to have a trial through the Jews who are now persecuting him. And so we see here that this sets the stage, because in verse 40 we hear, And when he'd given him leave, Paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people, and when they a great hush rushed over them, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So what we see here is set up for what we're going to see next week in the following chapter. Because as St. Paul is confronting this maddened mob, what does he do? He silences the crowd so that way he can give his defense. And as we're going to see within the defense that St. Paul gives, yes, he is defending his status as being a Jew. And yes, he is defending his status as bringing in the Gentiles. And yes, he is defending himself by showing that he is Roman. But ultimately, St. Paul is not defending himself. St. Paul is not going to be depicted as looking for a way out. Rather, St. Paul is going to be depicted as glorifying God. And so we need to pay attention to the dichotomy that we see within the section. Because within it, we see someone who is faithful to the will of God. And then we see a maddened mob that descends into madness, attempting to kill that person. And I think oftentimes we want to see ourselves within the equation as being St. Paul when situations like this arise. We think we are the ones who are being persecuted. We think we are the ones who are being isolated. And yet, how often do we just go around with the mentality of the crowd? How often do we conduct actions that we wouldn't do otherwise, yet Everyone else around us is doing it, so we just kind of glom on and go along with the mob. This is a small reality that we can see if we look very closely at our lives, because we do this in micro ways. It doesn't always manifest itself in us rushing together and trying to beat someone to death, as we see within this chapter. And yet, how many times within our life... Do we just kind of go with the flow of what everyone else is doing without questioning our motivations or why it is that we're doing what we're doing? And so what we need to highlight here is how easy it is to slip into this mob mentality, how easy it is to go in the wrong direction and be animated by the wrong spirits, because this mob in the way that they define themselves is justified. 
They believe that the St. Paul has been defiling the law in bringing Gentiles into the temple and doing all of these horrible things. And yet, what do we hear? Well, we hear that the mob can't even agree on the accusation that is to be made of St. Paul. And yet, does that stop them from going and beating Paul? Does that stop them from having this murderous intent in their heart? No. Because they have enslaved themselves to the passion. They have enslaved themselves to the spirit of resentment. And so, when we give ourselves over to the passions, when we give ourselves over to these negative aspects that are constantly clawing at us and desiring for us to deviate from God, but what happens? Well, we become slaves to them. We become slaves to these spirits because when we enter into this contract and when we enter into this obedience to them, they don't want our best interests at their heart. Because they've rejected God, so they don't have any best interest, objectively speaking, to share. Rather, they desire to pull us away in the same way that they have fallen away. And so when resentment enters our heart, and when this hard-heartedness continues in us, what happens? Well, we think that we're free because we're living for what we believe should be motivating us. And yet, in all actuality, we've closed ourselves off and hardened ourselves to receiving truth. So we need to constantly be vigilant. We need to constantly be going into our heart and asking ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? What is it that's motivating and animating us in our day-to-day life? And if it seems that something negative that's motivating and animating us, we as Christians have hope because we know that repentance is always a possibility. And as we've said time and time again, repentance isn't just an intellectual thing. It's not just a change of mind, but it's an utter reorientation of our whole person towards Christ. So now as we're in the Triodion period and as we're preparing for great and holy Lent, this beautiful time of repentance in preparation for Easter, for Pascha, we should take a careful inventory of our internal state. We should ask ourselves, where is it that we're missing the mark? Where is it that we're falling short? Because if I'm not going to look first at my own heart, and see the darkness that might be there, who am I to say that I can show you the light of Christ? If I'm not to look at the darkness that's in me first, who am I to turn around and judge someone else and their actions? So we need to take very close attention to how it is that we're acting. We need to pay very close attention to what it is that's motivating us. Because if we find that our hearts are hardened, and if we find that we have closed ourselves off to the reality that God is trying to reveal to us, well, there's still hope for us. Because we still have life in us. So we need to begin this continual process of repentance. So that way we can reorient ourselves towards him. And as we're going to see within the parable of the prodigal son this coming Sunday, when we come to ourselves in the depths of despair, 
as we're sitting among the pigs, desiring even the pods that they eat? Well, what is the revelation that will come to us? Well, the revelation is that we will be able to have true joy and true love if we return to our Father's house. So let us now, as we're preparing for the Lenten season, keep our eyes on the true goal of all Christians. Is that goal, ultimately, is to have eternal life, participating in the light of Christ, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming weeks, I invite you to see for yourself the depth of meaning that they can present to us all. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for this Bible study, links can be found in the description below. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in this Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live the life that Christ calls us to live through the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End every Sunday for Orthros starting at 8.30 a.m. and Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find an Orthodox church near you. As always, thank you for listening and may St. John the Forerunner continue to give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight.